The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me uh, to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis We're going to be looking at chapter 35 this morning. And so we have come to the end of our study. We've been in a study through the summer, the gospel and the life of Jacob. We will begin next week. We try to rotate um, in our church between Old Testament and New Testament. So we'll go back to the New Testament uh, starting next week. And we'll do a series for the fall on the book of Colossians. Uh, But we're going to finish Jacob this week, uh, and everyone, all the commentators pretty much end their series on Jacob at chapter 35. That doesn't mean Jacob's not still around in the book of Genesis. He definitely is. But after chapter 35, Jacob moves to the background, and his sons uh, move to the foreground. The focus becomes primarily on them. And there's lots of things that I hope that you have taken away from this series on uh, Jacob. Uh, But one of the things, big picture, that I hope that anytime we do things in the Old Testament, that I think it's helpful, and I hope it's been for you, uh, to teach you how to study and how to read the Bible. Uh, The Bible is not primarily about us and our moral failures and successes, The theme and focus of the Bible is how God invades the world with his grace and breaks in into the lives of broken, messed up people who do not deserve it, and he redeems them, and he saves them, and he uses them to work out his purposes in the world. If this series has shown us anything, it has shown us that there is only one hero in the Bible. It's not the patriarchs. There's one hero, and it's the Lord Jesus. We will see that once again in our passage this morning. Follow along with me as I read chapter 35, this last chapter in the life of Jacob. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appears to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror fell from God. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there they built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to them when he fled uh, from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bacchus. 
God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, and so Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and where they had still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is, it is, a pill, it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilphah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father, Isaac, at Mirmri, and Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the end of the reading of God's word. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for your help. Um, we're a needy people, and we need help. And so would you help us to understand this passage this morning? Would you meet us where we are? Would you give us a word that we can hold on to as we leave this place this morning? Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I read a story this week uh, about a man who was out uh, sailing in his boat, and he sees another boat that is drifting, and the boat is empty, and so he decides to connect uh, the boat that is drifting to his boat and to tow it in to the nearest dock. And as he's doing so, uh, there's a man who yells out, hey, you know, what are you doing? That's my boat. And so this man successfully unites or reunites this drifting boat uh, with its owner. Uh, and, and the question is, why was the boat drifting in the first place? It still had the anchor attached because the owner had deployed the anchor. 
But what the owner didn't realize was that in that area, the tides rise and fall significantly, and he hadn't put out enough rope with the anchor. And so when the tide came in, the boat or the anchor loses contact with the bottom, causing the boat to drift freely on the open water. Even though the owner thought that he had secured the anchor. And I tell you that story this morning because drifting, if we could sum Jacob's life up in one word, we might say drifting. That's what we see over and over in Jacob's life. It's, and if you've been coming to this series, you'll know it looks like he's moving forward with God and then all of a sudden he's moving backwards. He's hot spiritually and in tune with God and then he's very cold spiritually or he's up and down. In Genesis chapter 34, Jacob was not secured uh, with God and close to God and as a result we see a picture and if you were here a couple of weeks ago with Dinah of Jacob at his worst. And drifting you see is a dangerous thing for all of us. Because drifting often happens uh, and we don't even realize it. Think about it if you've been to the beach this summer and half of our church that's at the beach now, maybe they're experiencing this. But you go out into the water to swim or to ride waves and before you know it, you look up and you're like five condos down and you can barely see your umbrella. And the scary part of that is you don't even know it's happening. You just look up and you're in a place that you never thought you would be. And isn't that true of our lives as well? The culture and um, our surroundings gradually lift us up and we don't even know it's happening. And we lose contact with our anchor. We lose contact with God. And before you know it, You wake up or you look up and you're in a place that you never thought you would be. Jacob, we see it in his life over and over and over. And if we're honest this morning, we often see it in our lives as well, don't we? Drift. Seasons of spiritual drift. And so the question I want us to look at this morning is, how do we keep that from happening? How do we keep anchored in God rather than drifting away from him. Well, if we're going to stay anchored, it's going to involve three things. It's going to involve responding appropriately to God's grace. Secondly, it will involve receiving lots of repetition from God. And lastly, it will involve resting in God's gracious plan. So let's look at those three headings this morning. First of all, responding appropriately to God's grace. Look at verse 1. God says, and notice who says, who's initiating this. God is initiating this with Jacob. Arise and go up to Bethel, dwell there, and make an altar. And I, I mean, think about this. Please think about Jacob's life. This is absolutely astounding, isn't it? If this is not amazing grace, I don't know what is. The very first words after Genesis 34, think about Genesis 34 and that horrific scene and how passive Jacob is. The very first word, Jacob is not in a good place. 
Jacob does not seek out this encounter with God. He does not deserve this encounter with God. He is not looking for God, but God is looking for him. Gospel. Free, undeserved grace. Jacob is a messy disciple. He is far from a model disciple, and yet... In an act of grace, God comes to him, and notice he doesn't shame him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't give up on Jacob, but he comes, and he patiently and he gently calls Jacob to Bethel. He says, basically, Jacob, if you won't go to Bethel, I will take you to Bethel. I will make sure you get there. And once again, we see God's gracious initiative seeking out the lost sinner, graciously calling Jacob back into a relationship with himself. Is that not true of our lives as well? How often are we cold towards the things of God? How often are we indifferent and yet God graciously and patiently seeks us out. The Christian life, friends, is not about, thank goodness, how tightly we hold on to God, but it is about how tightly God is holding on to us. We are unfaithful. God is faithful. And then notice the response to this grace, and I think this is important. It's not, okay, I know God's going to seek me out. God's never going to let me go, and so I'm just going to go do whatever I want. That's not what we see with Jacob here, no, and we see it all throughout the Bible. Grace leads to not do whatever you want. Grace leads to holiness. Grace leads to purification. Look, it leads to repentance and leads to worship. Look at verses 2 through 4. He says to his family, put away your idols. Perhaps this is a reference to Rachel. Remember Rachel stole Laban's household idols in Genesis 31. Perhaps it's a reference to that. But he says, put them away, purify yourselves, change your garments, and let's go up to Bethel and let's worship. And so they gave all of their idols to Jacob and he buries them. God is graciously changing Jacob. Does it look like we want it to look? No. Is it really messy? Yes. But please note, God is changing Jacob, and he is causing here, and this grace in Jacob's life, you see him taking more responsibility and spiritual responsibility for his household at any point than we've seen in his entire life up until this point. Grace is what's leading him to put these things aside and destroy the things that will cause him to drift away. It is a picture for us, I think, of um, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Remember Romans 2, verse 4? It is the sternness of God. Is that what it says? No, it's the grace of God. It is the kindness of God, the Apostle Paul says, that leads people to repentance. 
And you see the act of repentance symbolized here in the act of changing clothes. That's what's happening. It reminds us of, again, the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 4. Take off your old clothes, your old self, and put on your new clothes. Put on the new self. Responding to God's grace means that we live a life of repentance. Notice I said a life of repentance. Repentance, we think, is a one-time thing when we become a Christian. No. Repentance is an everyday thing, a multiple times a day thing for the Christian, and it's one of the things that God uses to keep us close and to keep us from drifting. To say it another way, a person, and we think a person who's spiritually mature is repenting less. No. A person who is spiritually mature is actually seeing their sin more. They're more aware of it, and so they're repenting more. More and more they see, God, you are holy, and I am not. I need help. And we turn from our sin, and we go into the gracious arms of the Lord Jesus. And what makes all of the difference in our repentance is the way we view God. If you think God is going to crush you, if you think God is mean, if you think God uh, is going to make you pay, then there will be very little repentance in your life. But on the other hand, if you see God as gracious and kind and merciful and loving, then it will lead you to repentance, just like we see here with Jacob and his family. Holiness flows from gospel it flows from grace. And so what are they repenting of? What are they purifying themselves of? Very briefly, I won't spend much time here, but of idolatry. I don't have a time this morning to work out a theology of idolatry, but let me just sum it up this way. If you want to experience repentance unto life where you truly change, we must get to the idols of our hearts rather than just simply focusing on actions and behaviors. We must get uh, to the sin beneath the sin, so to speak. You must get to the loves of the heart, because that's where change is going to take place. How do you know what your idols are? Well, what are you looking to other than God for meaning and acceptance and value and intimacy, or when you're experiencing pain or suffering in some way, where do you turn? If you're lonely and life is not going the way you expect it, what are you looking to to plug yourself into in order to make yourself feel alive? John Calvin is famous for saying our hearts are like idol factories. Constantly cranking out new idols to bow down to and adore. What idols do you need to bury this morning? Secondly, we need to also receive repetition. Look at verse 9. This is pretty amazing. You start, work, let's just walk through this. But at Bethel, God appeared to Jacob and noticed the word again. Okay, so he's appeared to him once in Genesis chapter 38, and he's appearing to him now in Genesis 35 to renew and to repeat his covenant with him. Uh, and this is significant because 
This is the last time we see God making a personal visit with a patriarch in the Bible. At this point, the mode of revelation shifts from personal visits to dreams that we will see in the life of Joseph. Verse 10, notice again repetition from Genesis 32. Remember in Genesis 32, he gives Jacob a new name and calls him Israel, and that was to set Jacob apart uh, from his deceitful ways. Jacob means deceiver, and his life was very much a life of deceit. And God says in 32, I'm going to give you a new name, Israel, and I want you to live out of that name. And so he's reminding him of that name again here. And I think again gospel. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel in this final meeting with Jacob. The last thing that Jacob hears from the lips of God is, you are Israel. God is saying to Jacob, you're no longer defined by your deceits. Your manipulation is not who you are. I have given you a new name. You belong to me. You're mine. Now, Jacob, go and live out of that name. And that's exactly the same with us, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation. You have a new name. The old is gone. The new has come. And so, Christian, if you belong to Jesus, your past and your sin, whatever that is for you, does not define you. You belong to Jesus. You're a new creation. Live out of that name. Verse 11 through 15, what do we see? Repetition. We see echoes here of the previous verses, some earlier in Jacob's life, some all the way back to Abraham. Same, same lines, same song, and they just press repeat. Look at it. I am your God. You shall be called Israel. I will make you fruitful. I will give you the land. Who's doing this? God saying these things. I will, I will, I will. Kings will come from you. Translation, Jacob I got this. You don't. You're unfaithful. I am faithful. You, Jacob, break your promises. I keep my promises. Jacob, I got this and I am committed to you. Verses 13 through 15. What do we see again? Starts with an R. <laughs> Repetition. Almost identical to Genesis 30, 28, 18, and 19. He's, Jacob does the exact same thing. He builds a pillar, and he pours oil on it, and he calls it Bethel. You see what's happening here? God is, in a sense, uh, sitting Jacob down. He's, you've had people do this. Maybe your parents have done this with you. And he sits him down. He grabs him by the shoulders, and he says, I'm going to repeat myself and I want to make sure you've got this and make sure you hear clearly the words that are coming out of my mouth. Why does he do it? Because you know this, repetition is the what? Key 
to learning. Likewise, we could say, as one commentator said, repetition is the mother of faith. Repetition is essential for us living in this world, hearing God say the same things over and over and over again is one of the main ways that God disciples us. God just simply keeps repeating himself. And it's one of the gifts that God gives us to keep us close to him and to keep us from drifting. If you look and do a study of the Bible, you'll see over and over one of the main things God says to his people is to remember Remember, remember, remember. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Remember what God says to do with his word. He says we are to teach our children diligently. And then he says you need to repeat my word and repeat it to your children and repeat it to one another. When you sit down, when you stand up, when you go to bed, when you get up. You need to write it on your hand. You need to write it on your heart. You need to write it on your head and put it on the doorpost of your homes. In other words, hearing me and my word once is not enough. You see, we're forgetful people, aren't we? When we leave, and God knows that. And we'll leave this place. And by Monday morning, I guess Tuesday morning, you go back to work, life is going to hit you full speed. And like Jacob, in those moments, we'll be filled with doubt and possibly unbelief and we'll fail and we'll drift and we'll wonder if God still loves us and, and God will do the exact same thing he did with Jacob. He will repeat himself. And he will call us to our own Bethel. He'll call us, which he does every single week. He calls us to our own house of God. And he gathers us together here. And every week, what do we do? We just press repeat. And we sing songs and we hear from God's word and we go to the table and we pray and we do a confession and all sorts of things and we just hear God over and over saying to us, I love you. You are my people. I am pleased with you. I am your father. You are my children. I forgive you. One of the reasons why we do the Lord's Supper every single week because it helps us to remember. Jesus says, my body and my blood do this in remembrance of me. You see, it's called the ordinary means of grace. And they're not exciting. People would even say what's happening is boring It would get zero likes on Instagram, but boy, is it not God's good gift. It is God's good gift to us, and it's one of the ways he keeps us close to him, and it's why, friends, that Sunday morning worship is vital to your soul. It's vital to your spiritual health. 
Do not neglect it. Lastly, we see that God keeps us close to him as we rest. Look at um, verse 8. You see, it's interesting. We, this is a whole other point, but I won't do it, but n- do it this morning. Notice Jacob's purified himself, his family, his worship. God's renewed his covenant, but Jacob still lives in a broken world. All of those things do not guarantee a life of comfort and ease. You see lots of pain in these last closing verses and lots of uh, sorrow. In verse 8, Jacob arrives in Bethel and buries his mother's, Rebekah's faithful nurse, Deborah. Verses 16 through 20, look at that. His beloved wife, remember how much he loved Rachel. She dies in childbirth to Benjamin. Verse 29, Isaac breathed his last. It's a beautiful picture of how God has reconciled Esau and Jacob and they bury their father. And then in the middle of these deaths, look at verses 23 and 26. You have a record of the births of the 12 sons of Jacob who will become the 12 tribes of Jacob. And as you're reading these last few verses, it's almost like Moses, the writer, is saying, all right, let me throw in a bunch of random stuff here at the end of this section on Jacob. It's not random. This is the way God is signaling to us that Jacob's key role in his plan is over. With Isaac's death, it's the end of the history of the patriarchal period, and it's the beginning of the history of Israel proper. Derek Kidner, a commentator, I think summarizes it well. Listen to what he says. These deaths signify a point of transition as the promise was reaffirmed and the family was completed. That's why that birth was so important. By the birth of Benjamin. Jacob was to live on, but now the center of gravity would now shift to his sons. And as the spotlight starts to move to the next generation, the question becomes, okay, did that generation, did they learn uh, from their father? Would the next generation leave their idols and bury them and be more committed to God? What would become of Israel? Would they do better and be better than Jacob? And the writer and the narrator gives us a hint in verse 22. Again, not random. It seems random. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Seems random, but it's a way of reminding us (laughs) that the next generation would be no better that they would desperately need a Savior too. Reuben, committing incest with his father's concubine. We'll see later in Genesis, if we were to keep reading, the brothers take their least favorite brother, and they sell him as a slave. And Judah, the one who has, will carry the promise forward, would sleep with his daughter-in-law, mistaking her for a prostitute. 
showing us that indeed they are Jacob's children. But isn't that the point? You see, one of the things I've loved about this series in Jacob and really the Old Testament is that, friends, and you've seen this, God makes no effort to clean up his people. He makes no effort to clean up Jacob and to make him more presentable to the world. We get Jacob as he is. There's no effort for God to say, I've got to clean this up because this is embarrassing to me. Now, you see, God's people, including us, are a mess. They were a mess then. They're a mess when we get to the New Testament and the church is a mess today, and yet God is committed to us. We're in covenant with him, and he uses us to advance his kingdom in the world. It's one of the wonders and the wonderful truths of relentless grace. God's advancing his purposes does not depend on him finding willing and suitable people to carry out his purposes. He carries out his purposes through the most deeply flawed individuals, and we've seen it here in the life of Jacob. Even sinners cannot stand in the way and frustrate God and his plan. And we see that most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan does his worst. Humanity does its worst, killing Jesus But God, and I don't know how all this works because it's mysterious, but God takes all of that evil and all of that rebellion and sin and he uses that to accomplish and to redeem and to save the world. The story of the Bible, you see, is a story about how God uses scars and dysfunction and pain And he weaves all that together. Again, it's mysterious, but he displays through it his glory and his grace and his goodness. Are you discouraged this morning? Do you feel discouraged because your life feels like it's a wreck and a mess? Or maybe you look at your family and you see all of this this dysfunction. Or maybe you start comparing yourself to the other people around you, other Christians, and you say, they know more than me. Uh, They're a better Bible teacher than me. They know the Scriptures better than me. They're more loving. They're more compassionate. Surely God can only use those people. And God could never use me, people who are struggling like me. Friends, I hope if you have not seen anything else in this series, I hope Jacob has been like water to your soul. Because Jacob is God's way of telling us loud and clear that there is hope for everyone. It is God's way of telling us that he can redeem and rescue and use any human life, no matter your past and no matter your story. And so what do you say we go back to Bethel this morning? Go back to Bethel and fall down and worship God. Be reminded of God's commitment to failures like us. What do you say But we go back to the cross We bow down at the cross and remember that Jesus has taken all of our sin and he's nailed it to the tree. Amen?
Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. We do not deserve it. It is amazing grace. Would you forgive us this morning for our indifference towards you? Forgive us for our drifting. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and keep us close, that you would help us to respond appropriately to God's grace, and may it lead us to repentance. Holy Spirit, show us our idols that need to be buried. And help us to receive the repetition. I do think that oftentimes we get bored by the repetition. But repetition is a gift. And I pray that you would remind us of that and that we would hear the repetition anew and afresh. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.